this is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas, and you're listening to episode 9, a conversation with Dr. Adam Batina. Adam is a medical doctor, co-founder and chief medical officer of SPAN, a personalized health and nutrition startup. In this episode, we discuss certain myths about carbohydrates and intermittent fasting, and what are the flaws in the current medical approach to tackling type 2 diabetes and how all of these are linked with the aging process. Are you interested in what you can do to slow down the aging process? Then keep listening because we cover that too. We also speak about SPAN and how it is trying to solve these problems and Adam's journey through the entrepreneurial world. This episode is likely to ruffle a few feathers as it takes aim at the orthodox advice that has been given regarding nutrition but orthodoxy deserves to be questioned and scrutinized, especially if there's increasing evidence that it's wrong. So today we have with us Adam Batina, who is the co-founder and CMO of SPAN. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Thanks for having me. Adam, before we get kickstarted with the questions, could you give our listeners a brief overview of how you found yourself from being a doctor to a co-founder? Yeah, I, I graduated in, from medical school, like everyone else, start, started my foundation program I was as a junior doctor. But interestingly enough, a few years after doing that, I met uh, my, who is now my co-founder, Patrick, and he's a tech guy. He's a, a guy who is interested in biology, but he looks at it from a tech point of view. And it took me meeting someone from outside the medical sphere to get me interested in medicine. At that point, I was just doing medicine because I found myself in, in medicine. And then when I discovered this whole, that's when I saw the, the power of entrepreneurship and the power of innovation from an outsider's perspective. And that really got me interested in solving problems, solving medical problems in, in an entrepreneurial way. So it, it took, it actually came from a meeting my co-founder and we were interested in similar biological questions, but from he, him from a technical point of view, me from a medical point of view. And so we decided to go on this venture together and solve this problem in a more innovative, more entrepreneurial kind of way. And I really want to speak more about SPAN. But before we do, let's kick off with our first segment, which is underrated or overrated. And essentially in this segment, I'm just going to throw a few terms at you. And if you could tell me whether you, know, you think it's underrated or overrated and feel free to expand as much or as little as you want. Awesome. So, so let's go with the first one, wearables. Underrated. I'm actually wearing a uh, CGM, a continuous glucose monitor right now. Definitely yeah. underrated. It's interesting because the next one is going to be about specifically about glucose monitors, but I suspect we'll get into that in a bit as well. The effectiveness of current dietary advice. Definitely overrated. If you're talking about official dietary advice. Yes, I am. Would you care to share a bit more as to... The, the current uh, official dietary advice is always... Anything official is like this. It, it takes a while to adapt to new evidence. So <laughs> official guidelines are built on the evidence of 10 years ago. But these things are changing rapidly and it takes a long time for current guidelines to change. And that's why it's overrated. Carbohydrates. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I would say carbohydrates are still overrated. overrated. I mean, with all the hype, or with all the talk about uh, low carb and keto diet, it's still overrated. The keto diet it depends who you talk to. Some people, it, it seems to be either overrated by people or underrated by people, and uh, the middle ground is lost. So I'm going to go with the middle ground. 
Okay, you're going you're gonna to go for the, the neutral territory here. Exactly. VC funding as a means of capital for startups. Early on, overrated. Late, underrated. People go to raise money super early on. And this is something that I learned myself. We did that. And I think raising money early on can give you a long runway. It can make you feel like you're doing something. But I think ultimately, it's, you should wait as much as you can before you raise money. So moving on now, let's just get stuck into it. Let's talk a bit about type 2 diabetes and what you think might be the most common misperception that the general public has about type 2 diabetes. I think the most common misconception about diabetes is that it's people who have the misfortune of being diagnosed with diabetes, that it's a chronic progressive disease that is a label for life. Mm-hmm. I think that's the major thing, the major misconception that we have to change. Diabetes is a lifestyle-induced disease, and it can be reversed by lifestyle changes. And I think that's, for most people, that's not something that they grasp. It's yeah. like having hypertension. That's it. You have mm-hmm. hypertension, you're going to be hypertensive, and you have to take this, this pill for the rest of your life. And I think diabetes isn't like that. There is an aspect of diabetes that will obviously stay with someone. So if someone has diabetes and they've managed to reverse their numbers, they will mm-hmm. be prone to develop worse numbers if they, uh, if they don't take care of themselves. We can say that it doesn't have to be a progressive disease that starts with medication and ends with insulin and complications such as diabetic foot and kidney failure. It's essentially preventable and reversible. But as you've mentioned, most people are perceived to be this sort of life sentence of an illness. Why do you think that has stuck with most people, that they see it as something that they just have to live with and it's going to get worse? It's simple because that's true as an observable fact. So we've been seeing diabetes increase in the UK. I think since the 80s, the number or the percentage of diabetics has quadrupled Mm -hmm. and it's up to something like six or 7% now. So that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people get diagnosed with diabetes and uh, when you observe them, that's what happens. They just get worse over time and they require more and more medications. That's not because of the nature of the disease. It's more about how we're approaching it. Our mm-hmm. approach to the disease is totally wrong. It's totally flipped. It's not something which is deterministic in the sense that it's just going to get worse. And as you've mentioned, the way we actually go about handling it, heavily flawed. Could you point out to some common mistakes or the most serious mistakes that are made from either the end of the patient or from the side of the the healthcare services? I'll tell you a a little piece or like a way of understanding diabetes that might be not be the most scientific way of understanding it, but I think it's the best mental model or the best model to understand diabetes for me. I'm not the person to come up with this. I think this is, I heard it first from Jason Fong. So think of it like this. When you eat anything, carbohydrates, they go into your blood and they spike your blood sugar in your blood. And then think of your blood as a bowl and that blood sugar goes from your bloodstream into your cells. And think of that as another kind of bowl. How does your blood sugar or your glucose level go from your blood to your cells? It uses something called insulin, which is a hormone. And with time, if you keep cramming more and more sugar into your blood, it keeps going into your cells. Um, your cells will fill up and essentially you'll need more and more insulin to cram more and more sugar uh, and move all of that sugar from your blood, your cells or to your intercellular compartment. So when your cells are, f- are full, you'll need more and more insulin. And that's when you have hyperinsulinemia, which is a high level of insulin that has other adverse effects. 
And then once your levels of insulin aren't enough to move the glucose from your bloodstream to the cellular compartment, that's when you develop diabetes. There's nowhere else for the blood sugar to go. But what the traditional approach to diabetes does here is we give diabetics medications that increase the level of insulin. So it's like you have this suitcase full of shirts and you're just cramming more and more shirts into the suitcase. Because it's full, you can't put any more into it. So what you do is you just forcefully put more into the suitcase instead of removing the original problem, which is that the, the cells are just full of this glucose and you have to remove it. Most medications just are, are insulin secretagogues, so they inc- increase the secretion of insulin, or we give, the, we give patients actual insulin uh, injections. Yeah. And every single medication that relies on insulin leads to an increase in weight. Why? Because one of the other effects of, of insulin is that it locks in our existing stores, our existing energy stores, which is the uh, fat, and it increases our accumulation of fat. So that leads to diabetics not being able to lose fat and putting on more fat, although their blood sugar level is getting a bit more controlled. Right. So it seems to be this reactive approach that we have in trying to treat type 2 diabetes, but we seem to be focusing on downstream factors rather than the upstream. And as a result of these downstream factors, there are unwelcome, unintended consequences, which actually result in the worsening of some of the patient's symptoms in the first place. Exactly. If you have hyperthyroidism and your thyroid hormone level is really high, you want to lower that thyroid hormone level. It's the same thing with diabetes. It's a disease of hyperinsulinemia. So why aren't we focusing on lowering the the insulin level? When you think of it in that way, it's mad that you want to increase the, the insulin level. And the only way to decrease the insulin level is to decrease the carbohydrate level. And the only way to do that is to limit your carbohydrate intake, either by fasting or by cutting out carbs. Yeah, let's get into this a bit more. You mentioned earlier, Jason Fung, if, if I'm not mistaken, he's a low carb advocate. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And, and you've mentioned just now the role of carbohydrates and we, we very briefly touched on it earlier. Could you give us your take on the role of carbohydrates in type 2 diabetes? Yeah, I think the main problem with type 2 diabetes is that we have this um, excess uh, reliance on, on carbs. Uh, most people's diet, a lot of people call it the a balanced diet. I actually call it a high carb diet because <laughs> yeah. mo- most people's diet is, is a high carb diet. And what that does is, as I said earlier, it makes you cram your cells full of glucose and carbohydrates, and that leads to a spike in insulin, and which leads to you not being able to utilize energy stores such as fat, and that leads to not being able to lose weight. And it's like it's a cascade of, and it and it just gets worse. So I think that's the underlying problem in diabetes, and I, I still don't understand why the mainstream medicine hasn't adopted this view. Because the advice that's been given out by the public health bodies, uh, it seems to run very counter to the new evidence that's been coming out. I say new evidence. This is something that's been known for quite a few years now, but the guidelines still haven't changed much. Yeah, they are changing slowly. So the NICE guidelines, the new NICE guidelines are recommending more individualized carbohydrate intake, low glycemic index carbs. So when you say carbs is an umbrella term, right? You have different types of carbs. I'm not a, a total, some people see carbs as being like the, the total enemy. I don't think so. Probably sugar, yeah. Probably fructose, yes. But uh, carbs in general, you have to look at it individually. What works for one person, it doesn't work for other person. I think another model of thinking about this that is useful is to look at three components of any dietary intake. You can 
uh, think of it as three things, time, amount, and then the components of your diet, right? Mm -hmm. So you can either restrict the time of feeding, or you can restrict the amount of feeding without looking at the contents, or you can restrict certain contents of your meal. So these are the things, the three levers that you can use. And limiting carbohydrates is one lever. It's one tool that we can use. But right. there, are, there are other tools that we can use and it depends on our lifestyle. And it depends even on from day to day. If I know today that I'm going out and I'm going to be at this big, uh, I'm half Middle Eastern and a lot of Middle Eastern food is very, <laughs> is, is very carb dense. Yeah. And I, if I know I'm going to go big on the carbs that day, I might want to fast for the whole day and use my time. I'm, I'm Indian and I'm from Punjab, so that definitely resonates. <laughs> the other thing you mentioned about the feeding window, could you speak a bit about the role of intermittent fasting? Maybe not necessarily just in type 2 diabetes, but in general. Yeah, I think in general, a, a useful way to think about it is your body needs energy to perform, to live, right? Your, 20% of your energy is used in your brain. Your brain is running even when you're asleep. So you need this constant flow of energy. The first source of energy that your body gets is from the food you eat. So when you eat something that is utilized as energy. But then when you don't eat, when you're not eating, a few hours after you've eaten, your body still needs energy. So where does the the body get the energy? It gets it from the stored carbohydrate as in the form of glycogen in your liver and glycogen in your muscles. So that starts breaking down and going into your blood and that starts being utilized as energy. Although the glycogen in muscles doesn't really go into the bloodstream because of the, because there's no G6P enzyme. But anyway, so if you imagine a kind of person who is going to fast for a long period of time. So once you stop eating, you've, a few hours later, you start using your glycogen and then that lasts up to 48 to 72 hours later, you'll deplete all your glycogen stores. And then after that, what, what happens? Your body still needs to keep going. So that's when your body starts breaking down the fat stores and converting that to ketones, which is when your body starts converting from a glucose-based fuel to a ketone-based fuel. And that can last a long time. So these are the kind of three different fuels that you can get, either direct fuel from your food or glycogen stores or or fat stores. And I think you want to sometimes activate these three stores. You don't want to always be relying on the energy you get from your food. And why is that? Why do you want to do that? First of all, you want to think of it as a balance between the abundance of energy and scarcity of energy. Mm-hmm. So when you're eating, your body's telling itself that you have an abundance of energy, but we have an excess energy. We want to store it. We want to use it for building But when there's scarcity of energy in those periods where you're using your fat stores and your glycogen stores, that's when your body starts using up the spare parts and the repairing spare parts in the body and using that to build itself. And that is essential. But the problem in in modern life is we're bombarded with abundance, right? Mm -hmm, You're always mm -hmm. being bombarded with sources of energy and food. And it's really hard to activate the scarcity pathways. And we're always building. And most modern diseases are diseases of abundance, are diseases of excess building, really. Diabetes is definitely that, obesity, definitely, metabolic syndrome in general, and even cancer. Cancer is, you could say, a big part of cancer is an abundance of building. A big part of cancer is mitochondrial dysfunction, which is a part of metabolic syndrome. So yeah, 
building on what you mentioned about the modern environment and abundance, I think even looking at it from an evolutionary standpoint, our ancestors, when they were moving and hunting in the savannah or other places, they'd go around searching for food or nutrients and they wouldn't necessarily always find it, but they were programmed to fuel hunger as a survival mechanism to ensure, okay, that we're looking for nutrients. But obviously what's happened with the modern environment now is that there's been this flip with the supply and demand. So the hunger mechanism is still there. We constantly feel hunger. Unfortunately, the supply is in abundance. So now whenever we feel hungry, it's there, which is a complete reversal of how things were. So whilst we've progressed perhaps in other ways, there is still a primitism towards our evolutionary mechanisms. That's greatly put. And these scarcity ways that we we need to be activating to live longer and healthier are not just related to prevention of diabetes. There's like lots of research and, you know, longevity research and healthcare mm. research has, has shown there are pathways that actually extend your life. We can talk about this if you want. It's a perfect segue. So go for it. This experiment that was done in 1935 by McKay. His name was James McKay, I think. He was a scientist and, and this was during the Great Depression. So this story is fascinating because he, what happened is it was something like his lab was defunded and he had all these mice that he was doing all sorts of experiments on, but he didn't have the, the food to feed these mice. So he devised an experiment based on this. So he had one group of mice that were fed at a calorie deficit and another group of mice that, was, that were fed at a normal calorie requirement. And what was noticed that the mice that were fed at a calorie deficit lived longer and significantly longer. And that was, I think, the first ever experiment to show an intervention that will extend lifespan in an organism. And that kind of spawned the whole research into longevity on a, a myriad of different animals and organisms. But it remains one of the most powerful tools that we have to extend lifespan and it works across species it's a conserved it's intervention that we can use to extend lifespan from mice to worms to primates even and d- digging into this a bit more the advice initially given about the importance of having smaller but fewer meals throughout the day or how breakfast is maybe the most important meal of the day the two seem to stand at loggerheads. On one hand, you've got that piece of advice. And then the second, obviously, caloric restriction being a low-hanging lever that we can use to prolong lifespan or even health span. Yeah, I think every diet is a variation on a caloric restriction at the heart of it. But it's really hard to restrict your calories if you're on a carbohydrate-based diet. Because carbohydrates are not satiating unless they're very complex carbohydrates with a lot of fiber, you could do that. But I think at the heart of it, that's what the benefit uh, is from most diets. So you see people who go on plant-based diets or paleo diet or uh, a number of different diets and they see a tremendous benefit. It's because you, you would if you go off the standard diet. In, right. If you just go on to any kind of diet that is not the standard, that is full of processed food, and junk Mm -hmm. food, yeah, you would benefit. That's because you're lowering calorie intake and Mm -hmm. all all these other things. But but it seems like that calorie restriction or time-restricted feeding, some people call it intermittent fasting, is is the best way of being at a a calorie deficit, but also not having to eat small meals. And as I said, it's one of the levers we can use, but it's not a prescription for everyone. There have been individuals who've gone onto a different diet, and this could be a vegan diet or a plant-based diet, and others who've maybe tried on completely opposite end of the spectrum, a pure carnivore diet. 
And they mention obviously these improvements that they felt, but a lot of that is perhaps confounding the fact that it's not necessarily what they're consuming, but it's also many things that they're no longer consuming and actually keeping a caloric restriction in place. Exactly. I think we focus too much on the components, the individual macronutrient components of our diet, and we neglect the most important thing, which is how much we eat or the time where we're eating and the time where we're fasting. I think that's the most important thing. If you do intermittent fasting properly, it doesn't really matter what you eat. You'll probably be in healthier shape than most people. In addition to being a doctor and a co-founder, you've also got a background in genomics. Yeah. What role do you think genomics plays now with the increasing data and technology that's going to be available, or rather that is available, in helping people choose their nutrition? Yeah, I think both nutrition and calorie restriction and all these things have a a big genetic component that is also really interesting to me. So one of the things, as we said, fasting does is activates these components of uh, these genetic pathways. And some of these genetic pathways have been discovered only recently. We can go through them, maybe there's kind of three main pathways that I think lead to a healthy life. These are the kind of pathways that we need to be focusing on and activating. That's why we fast. It's not just to uh, lower the calorie intake. So the first pathway is the insulin IGF pathway. So when we're fasting, we're lowering our carbohydrate and glucose level, uh, blood glucose level, and we're lowering the insulin level. And that's one of the shortest pathways to be activated when we fast. And that kind of gets activated within hours. And that leads to activation of sirtuins, which has multiple effects on our health. But then if you fast for longer than that, so about 18 to 20 to 20 hours, or 16 to 20 hours, you start activating your mTOR pathway, which is a, a sensor that senses amino acids which come from protein. And this sensor is activated in the presence of amino acids and it's inhibited when, you don't, when you're not eating. And this is probably the most important pathway in longevity. It's called the mammalian target of rapamycin, yep. which is targeted by a drug called rapamycin. This has been studied extensively and across species, it has been shown to extend lifespan. So it's probably the same in, in humans. And the only thing to inhibit mTOR without taking medication is through, through fasting. The second thing is to take rapamycin, which I'm actually interested in. And a lot of people are researching and some people take it. It's interesting you mentioned the rapamycin as well. It's something I've been looking at over the past few months. And there's a, a researcher, Mikhail Blagosconi. Yeah, um, I, I had a spat with him on Twitter the other day. Oh, did you get in a fight with him? <laughs> it was over. It was a nerd fight. It was over the role of metformin in, with people who exercise. Oh. If you exercise a lot, should you take metformin or not? <laughs> was, he, was he saying you should and you were saying you don't need to? Exactly. (laughs) I thought so. Yeah. So he was one of the people whose work I came across early on, and he's been this proponent of rapamycin and saying that actually pretty much anyone or everyone should be able to take rapamycin because in low dose, there aren't that many negative side effects. And there's a lot of research going into it. So it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. Very interesting in a pulsed kind of way. So you would do it as uh, I think five milligrams once weekly. And mm-hmm. that seems to be the way to do it because it, it differs a lot if you give it every day. The current regimes for most, if I'm not mistaken, the kind of analogs to rapamycin are given in a daily fashion and they're given like at a smaller dose. And that seems to have a, a big inhibitory effect on your immune system. And that's used for transplant patients. 
But if you give it in a pulsed weekly, fa- uh, weekly fashion, it seems to negate these effects and inhibit mTOR. From what rapamycin seems to do, I don't want to hype it up too much, but it almost seems somewhat magical in its ability to arrest and even reverse aging to the point where I think the majority of the population don't seem to be aware of this wonder drug or, or at least the potential that it can hold. I totally agree. So there is a caveat here that it probably has less of an effect in uh, larger uh, kind of organisms such as ourselves than it does in organisms like uh, C. elegans or, um, mm-hmm. or, or mice. But it still definitely does have an effect on human beings. And there is some clinical data to, to support that. It's a very gray area at the moment, but I think it will change and it, mm-hmm. it will be a drug that will be prescribed more widely. However, that does bring us on to this other the next level, which is if you organize your life to be 100% efficient in calorie restriction, you're, mm-hmm. doing, you're taking all the right supplements, you're even taking rapamycin, you're taking all these things, you'll probably live a longish life and you'll probably live a healthy life, which is good in itself. But I think ultimately we're going to have to look beyond these things, beyond these strategies and look at actual genetic engineering and the work of some people such as David Sinclair that you might have heard of at Harvard, who was working on some really interesting cutting edge stuff that will actually reverse aging because mm-hmm. you can do all of these things and you'll probably delay aging, but you're not really treating the root of the problem. Yeah. David Sinclair, who's looking at the role of sirtuins and other individuals such as Horvath, who's created the, the yeah. Horvath clock or the epigenetic clocks. And, and they're looking into something now about parabiosis. So actually using blood transfusions from a younger population and seeing the effects of that when transfused into a slightly older population. And they've used epigenetic clocks to see whether it actually reverses the age or not. And the preliminary results at least look promising. But I'm sure, again, there are many other caveats to that. Well, that's interesting. I'll give you one of them. Because there's a paper that came out a few weeks ago that showed that in, a, in an old mouse, mm-hmm. they, what they did is they replaced the blood with um, normal saline and albumin. That was mm-hmm. it. And they, it had the same effects of re- reversing the aging and the same ev- effects of anti-aging uh, properties on this mouse. It seems like this whole thing of replacing young, old blood with young blood is more about taking out things than adding something. So removing the negative components perhaps that have accumulated rather than the Exactly. So it's new. probably yeah. exactly the removal of anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory agents and the, the uh, SASP secretory components. It is just a fascinating topic overall, and it seems like we're just barely scratching the surface of all of this. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is what's going to change healthcare forever in the, within the next few decades. But most doctors, and this is not true with young doctors, but older, the older generation, the old guard, have no idea this is going on. what you were talking about earlier with regards to carbohydrates and we should actually be promoting diets that are low in carbohydrates there would be quite a few clinicians who would probably disagree with you on that just because of what they have been used to or because of the evidence that they've looked at over their years of practice and there's almost a reluctance to even adopt this new approach on carbohydrates there's going to be a much bigger reluctance to you know adopt certain practices when it comes to longevity exactly and it's quite fascinating to see 
like people who spend who like rely mostly on simple carbohydrates and junk food no one freaks out that's mm. accepted but when you say yeah, i want to go on a keto diet and eliminate all carbohydrates medical professionals freak out they're like yeah oh, you can't do this unsupervised we this is insane <laughs> you know, it's, it's it might not be the best approach for everyone sure yeah but it's definitely better than the standard diet do you think that's because clinicians are actually practicing evidence-based medicine here or is it more so that they're following protocols and i would draw a distinction between the two yeah, I think it's more like following protocols. It's easy and safe to follow protocols and you're never mm-hmm. going to be you're never going to be wrong when you follow protocols. But on the other on the other hand, you're never going to solve big problems when you follow protocols because the protocols are what led us here. If the protocols were right and we wouldn't have quadrupled the percentage of diabetes over the last few decades. So the protocols are obviously not working. In terms of trying to solve big problems, can you speak a bit about SPAN now? What problems is SPAN trying to solve and how does it go about doing that? I think kind of to take a step back, it's healthcare is, why healthcare is broken, in my opinion, it's more like sick care. It's more like we wait until people are sick and then we start treating them. And that's when it's too late, really. You're yeah, just, I couldn't agree like, more. Yeah. So why is that? Is because prevention is is hard, and prevention needs personalized healthcare, and it's uh, it can be difficult to implement on a, on a larger scale. Well, I think that's where things are changing with technology and with digital therapy. The problem with current healthcare systems is they rely, as you said, on protocols, and they're not very personalized, and they're not very uh, because that's the only way you can scale a healthcare system for millions of people. But we're trying to use digital therapy and to deliver a personalized experience that can be implemented early on before the person gets the disease or when the person has the disease to to be delivered in a personalized way that is also scalable. So how, how do you do that? How do you bridge that gap between being scalable and being personalized? I think something like 90% of people with diabetes when they're first diagnosed in the UK are offered diabetes education. So they're offered to have diabetes education at a structured kind of program. But something like less than 10% of people who are offered the program actually go. And that was the problem that kind of led to SPAN that I learned of. And when I looked into this problem, it was mostly that it was delivered in person. You get diagnosed with diabetes and then you get this letter in the mail saying, you can go to this program that is in this area and you have to go there in person and like a group session. But most people don't really have the time. And also a lot of people who have diabetes, the reason why they have diabetes is because they they don't really take that much care of their health or their circumstances have led them to a place where they don't have time to learn more about these conditions. So you don't want to make it harder for them to learn about their own condition to treat it. So that is really what led to SPAN, which is trying to deliver that same level and a higher level of personalized service to where the patient is, to their home, to their phone, or their, over their uh, a mobile app, or even through a phone call. So that's how we're trying to make this personalized product, but that also leverages technology to make it scalable and to make it reproducible to everyone the personalized product or the personalized plan, what would that include for a particular patient who signs up? So it would include one-on-one sessions with a nutritionist 
mm-hmm. but it would also include a personalized carbohydrate intake. So you would put in your information and that would give you a personal nutrition plan that you could follow. And we provide all of these like tips and tricks, how you can, how you can follow this plan without feeling like you're following an actual restrictive diet. And then you have the, uh, the ability to text the nutritionist whenever you want. And it just feels like you're WhatsApping a friend. Another big component of it is also the group effect. So what we're doing now is we're offering a product to employers where we have groups of employees joining together and, mm-hmm. they can, and this can leverage the whole group effect where whole groups are following the, a similar kind of journey and that has a, a positive and they have a positive effect on each other. When it's the group effect in play, say the community aspect, have you found that usually yield better results than when it's individuals who are engaged in the process? Absolutely. It's really hard for, you need to be really motivated to change your habits on your own. So it is not that hard if you have a a proper coach, because that's the role of a coach is to provide that support and provide the kind of insight of how to transition to a healthier lifestyle without feeling like it's a transition. So the whole point of it is not to change your habits, it's to replace habits with Mm -hmm. healthier habits without feeling like you're actually drastically changing your life. Change requires motivation and motivation is finite, but habits are there to last. So if you replace your habits with healthier habits, that's the only way to go if you really want to change the system of your life. It reminds me of that, which is you can't change addictions. You can only replace your addictions. So just try and pick good addictions. (laughs) Exactly. And in this process of trying to start and then set up and execute span, has there been anything that has been surprisingly difficult, which you wouldn't have immediately thought to be the case when you set out on this journey? Yeah, I think this is unique to healthcare startups, which is it takes a long time before you can validate a product in healthcare. Uh, and it's such an important thing that you need to get right from the first. So it's not, if you're launching a new, uh, a new game or something like that, you don't really need to prove that it's, it works. But if you're making any medical claims, you really need a lot of data and you really need a lot of a rigorous process before you can actually make any claims. And that's, I think, a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because in principle, it leads to products that are validated. But it's also a bad thing because a lot of startups don't have the stamina to go through all these regulatory hoops. Mm -hmm. So it's a fine line between, is it uh, stifling innovation or is it making it safe? I think that was the thing that now on the kind of on the other side, but we still have a certain product that we want to launch. We're still going through regulatory processes for that. On one hand, ensuring that the the regulation process is robust enough so that you can actually separate the wheat from the chaff and you don't have unvalidated products or or companies who are perhaps pushing inappropriate products through the market. But at the same time, the environment could definitely be more friendlier for emerging startups um, who are looking to spur innovation. How has the fundraising process been like? Honestly, I was surprised how much we could raise early on without... Mm -hmm. Uh, with very little to show, but it just shows that people are waiting eagerly for people who are innovating in healthcare. And if you show that you're a good team that has a proper problem that you're solving, I think it's actually pretty easy to raise money these days. 
even up after COVID, I mean, we just finished our Cedars campaign and we, I think we closed, we're up to 113% now of our target. And that was in seven days. So mm-hmm. I think the appetite for investing in healthcare startups is there. And people, investors are just waiting for uh, genuine products that solve real problems. And how was it trying to communicate your vision of SPAN to investors, given that you're um, a startup that operates in the, the healthcare space, specifically within nutrition? Was this something that was easily understood or was there a bit of initial friction? For a lot of people, once we mentioned diabetes, they just turn away. They're like, yeah, diabetes isn't sexy. It's all been done before and we're not interested. Mm-hmm. But once you phrase it in the whole changing landscape of diabetes and how treating diabetes in this way is kind of opening a door to other metabolic conditions and other chronic conditions in general and looking at diseases from the lens of prevention and lifestyle changes, that kind of puts a a different spin on it and it puts a, a proper frame on it. So it depends who you talk to really, but for some people, they just get it and they're a champion of this kind of approach. And for some people, they just feel like you're doing something that is uh, diabetes has been around for 30 years and it's just, there's nothing uh, new going to happen in diabetes. So they're not interested. Are there any pearls of wisdom you've picked up in pitching to different investors that you could share potentially for someone who might be in a similar position to, to where you are? I think the more you pitch, the better you get at it. But the problem is you, it's also a curse to get really good at, at uh, pitching because you become like a robot and you're just t- saying the things that they will like. I, I think the best investor relationships we've had are not with people we've actually pitched. They're people that you meet on uh, Twitter or you meet in person and or you have discussions about something that is totally unrelated. Mm-hmm. So I think the best way to pitch is not to pitch actually, is to build relationships and to build a good network and to, to have interesting conversations that lead to people being interested in what you're doing. It's the best way to sell is not to sell. VCs would have a particular framework on how they would select startups that they wish to invest in. At Span, did you and your team have a specific framework of which kind of VCs or investors you would be willing to work with? Yeah, we always focus on a personal connection to the problem. So even with our employees and with ourselves, we all have a kind of a personal connection to this problem that we want to solve. And everyone who we came on board, if they're advisors or employees or investors, we always focus on the personal connection because that's what really what we are about at the core. We're about personal care and we want people to feel personally involved. So that's what we, what we look for. Is there a particular area that you think is neglected that no one is looking at but deserves more attention? I think there's a lot of research going on in the longevity space Mm -hmm. from a kind of uh, biology point of view, but there's not much going on from the clinical part. So there's the the David Sinclair's and the Aubrey de Grey's of of research, but there's no equivalent on the clinical side. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an area that is neglected because there are interventions out there that we can use right now that will have these effects as we talked about rapamycin and all, all these lifestyle changes that we can use and different drugs, synolytics. So these have to be put into proper guidelines and be prescribed in, in a clinical setting. I think we're there, but um, we're just waiting for the right people to take these things on. 
What is the one view that you hold in this space of, of healthcare, perhaps, which most people would disagree with you on, but you strongly believe you are right about? Most people saying, as in doctors, probably that aging is the root cause of all, if not, or most, if not all diseases. Mm-hmm. That's definitely becoming a less of a less and less of a contrarian point of view, which is good. You always yep. want to be like that, but I think that's it's still not mainstream. And most doctors think of aging as a natural process that is unreversible. And we just have to deal with. Even from the clinical point of view, among doctors or other healthcare workers, there is this reluctance about adopting longevity as a positive thing. I think we need to first declare that aging as a disease. Mm-hmm. Right. Once you do that, and then you start getting more research, research funding going into longevity, you start having the impetus to treat aging, but it needs to be declared as a disease. If there was one thing that you wish our listeners could take away from this episode, specifically with regards to diet, what would it be? I think the three levers that you can use, which are time and quantity and individual components of your diet. These are the three levers that you can use. And you don't have to use one of them and not the others. You can interchange them depending on your lifestyle and depending on the day. And I think that's the main thing. You don't have to stick with one kind of diet. You can use one of these levers, two of them, and actually all three of them sometimes. And I think that's the best way to think about diet. Thank you so much for joining us today, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And that was this week's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, or even if you didn't, please let us know by leaving a comment or any feedback in either the Instagram or LinkedIn posts. And to catch all future episodes, head over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, click subscribe. And if you could leave a rating, that would be great. This is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas. Thank you for listening. Till next time.